So, my name's Audra Kunzman, and our verse this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray that you would plant it in our hearts, water it by your spirit, and cause it to grow and bear fruit for our eternal joy and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I want to start by saying that I have absolutely nothing against hunting. In fact, if you happen to get a deer this coming fall, keep me in mind. I love venison. Nothing against hunting, but I'm not a hunter. I did get my hunting license once. I was 22, living in Springfield, Missouri, and it was a little bit of a When in Rome, do as the Romans do. And so I went and took my hunter's safety class, paid and bought my license, sighted in my rifle, went out with my friends to pick the perfect spot where we would get a deer. And then the night before hunting season opened, I was doubled over in excruciating abdominal pain. And went to the ER to find out my appendix, appendix was perforated and I needed to have surgery. I woke up the next morning groggy from the anesthesia and nauseous and not feeling well at all. And there are my friends in the room with me. And I thought, what good friends. And then they leaned over and whispered, we're still going hunting. Can, can we borrow your truck? <laughs> uh, the moral of that story is Dan needs to pick better friends, and I know virtually nothing about hunting, but it seems that there's two different approaches to hunting. One, which is the approach we were going to take that day, is the sit and wait You find yourself a spot in the bushes, you put up a blind, you climb up a tree and put a stand up, and then you just wait for the deer, the turkey, whatever, to come by. I would not be good at that. 
I don't have the patience for it. I don't like fishing because I don't have patience. But there seems there's another way that people hunt. The stalking method. You track the deer or the antelope or whatever you're hunting through the woods. You follow the footprints. You stalk them, hunt them, and eat them. When it comes to joy, I think too often we take the still hunting method. We just sit and wait for joy to happen. I think that's the wrong approach. We ought to choose joy. Go hunt for joy. Stalk it. Seize it. And don't let it go. As a Christian, I believe we're we're called to choose joy as a deliberate response, a deliberate act of obedience in response to who Christ is and what he has done. So this sermon in this series, this is about choosing joy. Two weeks ago when I spoke about choosing freedom, I had a text, Galatians 5, and I brought to that text a drill. And we drilled down into the text, and I took my main points from the text. This morning is going to be a little bit different approach. Matter of fact, I already had some dear saint ask me about my opinion on a word in 1 Peter chapter 1, the passage that Audra read, and I had to confess to her, I haven't really studied 1 Peter chapter 1 this week. And she said, what? Uh, Because that's the text for the morning. I'm not bringing a text and a drill. This morning, we're going to take a rake and comb through the sands of all of Scripture and find what treasures are there related to joy, what truths get uncovered connected to what Peter calls that inexpressible joy that is full of glory. And I think we're going to see three bold Claims that Scripture makes regarding joy when we pull all these texts and look at what they're saying. Three bold texts or bold claims related to joy. But before we get to bold claim number one, I want to start with a disclaimer because some of the language I used this morning might be confusing. Because this morning, throughout the sermon, I'm using joy and happiness rejoicing and gladness, and a multitude of other words as virtual synonyms. We often make a distinction between happiness and joy. And that might be a helpful distinction, but it's not a distinction that the Bible makes. The the Bible uses these words synonymously, often in parallel. We often make the distinction that happiness is an emotion and joy is something deeper than that. But again, that's not a distinction that the Bible makes. And let me just show you a couple texts to make that point. Jeremiah 31. Then shall the young woman rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give gladness for sorrow. Other translations say, I will give happiness for sorrow, 
or I will give uh, joy for sorrow. All these words used in parallel and synonymously. I can pull up dozens. I'm not. One more passage. Psalm 92. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Again, other translations say you've made me happy. And then it holds happiness and joy in parallel as synonyms. I think this is an important point because if a person is joyful, then he or she is happy. There's no such thing as glum joy. You you can't drain joy of emotion and still call it joy. When God's Spirit gives us joy, then we are happy people. I think it's a this distinction unfortunately allows us to well live downcast grumpy lives and still say well i've got joy <laughs> do you do you though so we're called to choose joy to to choose happiness i don't think there's a difference between joy and happiness but there is a massive difference between worldly joy and godly joy, or worldly happiness and godly happiness, and we'll talk about that. Okay, that was the disclaimer. Bold claim number one. Jesus is the happiest human who has ever lived. If I was going to ask you, this is, you know, You see the answer now, right? I've given you the answer key. But if I was going to ask you for adjectives to describe Jesus, I'm sure you would come up with words like love, mercy, kindness, holiness, glorious. Would happy have made your list? How far down? Uh, The Bible gives us a picture of Jesus, our happy Savior. Jesus, our joyful master. Matter of fact, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, talking about Jesus, says, You loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You are more joyful, more glad, more happy than any human who has ever lived. To see Jesus is to see God. And Jesus is joyful, so we can conclude that God is joyful. It is a big mistake, a mistake of the first order, to imagine God as gloomy, glum, downcast. No, Jesus shows us what God is like, and Jesus is joyful. You you could reverse that reasoning also. The Bible pictures God as being joyful. And Jesus possesses all of the divine attributes to the perfect degree. So if God is joyful, then Jesus is joyful also. John Piper writes, Jesus is the happiest being in the universe. 
His gladness is greater than the angelic gladness of heaven. He mirrors perfectly the infinite, holy, indomitable mirth of his Father. How many times have you thought of God and mirth? This might just sound like theological trivia. It's not. It is a massively important truth in our theology. Why is it true? Why is it important? Because Jesus says, I've come to give you my joy. John chapter 15. These things I have spoken to you, my disciples, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If Jesus is only a little bit joyful, only a little bit happy, he doesn't have much to dispense. But he's infinitely joyful. And he gifts that joy to us. He can fill our cups with his joy and still have joy overflowing. That is why saints can say, my soul thirsts for God. My delight is in God. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Because in Jesus, there is joy overflowing, joy abundant. This is a massively important truth. Because Jesus comes to give us his joy. And because, well, have you ever worked for a miserable boss? Just a a guy or a gal who just can't smile. Who just can't be happy even though the numbers are great, the reports are positive. They drain your life. They make it miserable. Jesus' happiness makes it a joy to serve him. And have you ever been in a home that is joyless, where there's no laughter? We're going to spend a long time in God's house, like a really long time. It's a happy home. God our Father, Christ our brother, they're happy, they're joyful, and they share their home with us. Their happiness, their joy is what makes their home heaven. It matters that God is happy. And it matters because Jesus showed us that sorrow and joy can coexist. Tears and happiness are not mutually exclusive. We're well acquainted with Jesus' suffering. And at this time of the year, we rightly focus on his humility, on his servanthood, on the fact that he came to lay down his life, to bear our iniquities, to have his back striped and his hands pierced. We're well acquainted with his sufferings. But even in the midst of those, he remained a joyful, happy Savior. In fact, the way the author of Hebrews says it, it was because of joy that he went to the cross. Hebrews chapter 12. Holding up Jesus as the model for how we ought to live and endure. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So James will tell us, right? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face all kinds of trials. Because you know those trials are producing you perseverance, and that perseverance, that testing leads to endurance, and endurance brings the crown of life. In essence, for the joy set before you, for that crown of life, endure, just as Christ did for the joy that was set before him. First bold claim, Jesus was immensely happy. Second bold claim, Jesus demands our happiness. Not just wishes it, not just wants it, demands it. A couple years ago, I think it was Father's Day, maybe it was my birthday, my wife gave me an IOU present. It was, pick a concert and I'll go with you to whatever concert you want. I haven't taken her up on this yet because it would be miserable. (laughs) She would go because she said she would do it, but she would hate it. She just doesn't like the same music I do. She'd do it out of duty because she said she would. It's the same reason she stopped taking me to the outlet mall, right? Uh, I'll go. I won't complain, but she'll look at me and say, but I know you don't enjoy it. Well, yeah, I don't. I can't make myself. We often serve God with that same attitude. Out of duty, out of obligation, and God will have none of it. That's not enough. He he wants our joyful service. As God is making his covenant with Israel, he's laid out before them the path of life, and he has said, keep my commands, obey my laws, serve me, and it will go well with you. But if you don't, here's what's going to happen. In this list of cursings, comes in Deuteronomy chapter 28, listen to what God says. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things. I gave you so much, and still you weren't joyful, you weren't celebrating, you weren't happy. Therefore, you'll serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lack of everything." God threatens horrible things if we will not be happy in him. Jesus, Matthew 5, this is the end of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Uh, Those verbs, rejoice and be glad, are in the imperative tense. That's the tense of command. Not request, not suggestion. Be happy. Be joyful. 
The Westminster Larger Catechism gets at this in the first question. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the reason we were made, the purpose for our existence. God wants it for us and demands it of us. Second bold claim, God demands, Jesus demands our joy. Third bold claim, the gospel of Jesus is good news of happiness. Now, the gospel cannot be reduced. Please hear me say this. The gospel cannot be reduced to God wants to make you happy. Right? It is more than that, but not less than that. From the beginning, when the prophets were prophesying about Jesus coming into the world, about Messiah coming to redeem This is the language Isaiah uses. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace and brings good news of happiness. Other translations might say, who brings good news of good things or brings glad tidings of good things. Publishes salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. The prophets are saying Messiah is coming and that will be a happy, happy occasion. So the angels announce, right? To the shepherds in the field, this is the gospel. This is good news of great joy. And Jesus went around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that the kingdom has come and is among you and is to be received with joy. One of the short parables Jesus taught related to the kingdom comes in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. The message of the kingdom is to be received with joy. The kingdom of heaven is worth infinitely more than the cost of discipleship. Sell everything you have and go get the kingdom. It is a treasure. Selling everything you have to attain the kingdom is a bargain you make with joy. It's that valuable. Now, there is no kingdom without the cross. Jesus walked to that agonizing death, as we already saw, for the joy set before him. And by his cross, he achieved our forgiveness, which is a joyful thing. The psalmist says in Psalm 32, How joyful is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person who the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Has your slate been wiped clean by the blood of Jesus on the cross? Be happy about that. Sing for joy. 
at that good news. But the cross isn't the sum total of the gospel either. There's the resurrection, the vindication of our Savior. Jesus in John chapter 16 speaks of this. In his resurrection, he ushers in an era of happiness. In essence, he says, the time is coming for your grief. I'm walking to a cross. I'm going to die. You won't see me for a short time. That will be the time of your grief. But then, I'll see you again. And you'll rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. We're living now in that era of joy. Because we've seen Jesus raised from the dead. And that joy cannot be taken from us. So Luke records Jesus saying in Luke 10.20, Rejoice, your names are written in heaven. The gospel is good news of happiness. It's meant to make us happy. It's bigger than our happiness, right? It includes the whole cosmos, all being reborn, remade, every fraying fiber of this universe will be recreated and remade in harmony, in shalom, and we partake of that. It's bigger than our happiness, but it's not smaller than our happiness. Okay, three bold claims. I want to take some time to get practical with these bold claims. But before I do, allow me one more disclaimer. Recently, someone told me about a family, not in our church, not even in our state. And they were very happy for this family because they had come to faith in Christ. Something to celebrate. Also concerned because the mother of this family confided to the person that's telling me the story, trying to protect some anonymity here, that now that I have Jesus, I don't need my mental health medications. Um, depression is a real thing. Anxiety is a real thing. Mental health expert, don't say, Dan, I'm going to do the Jesus thing and leave my meds in the cupboard. Talk to your doctor. Jesus promises healing eventually from everything that ails our bodies and our minds. Eventually. If you're diabetic, take your insulin. If you've got high blood pressure, take those meds. If you're struggling with mental health issues, uh, depression, take those meds and look to Jesus. Not either or, and Look to Jesus. So how do we get practical with some of these big claims? First, don't confuse joy with silliness or frivolity. Christian joy is weighty and serious. Almost made it through a whole sermon without quoting C.S. Lewis. It's not going to happen. C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy, Christian joy, Christian happiness isn't necessarily the happiness of party poppers and kazoos. It's the joy of 
You thought everyone forgot your birthday, but you walk into a surprise party in your honor. It's the joy of a husband and wife, a bride and a groom at the altar, tearing up, making commitments, making vows to one another, knowing it's going to be hard, knowing there's going to be suffering, and joy. It's the kind of joy of a man and a wife husband and wife in a delivery room. There's pain, there's tears, and there's joy. Don't confuse joy with silliness or frivolity. It's weighty, it's deep, it's profound. Second, don't look for joy in the earthly, but in God. Throughout this week, there was times where as I was preparing this sermon, I was twitching a little bit, Because this is about as close as I've ever come to a health and wealth prosperity kind of gospel message. You're like, really? Yeah, it's probably about as close as I've ever come. They don't have it all wrong. God wants us happy. But where the health and wealth prosperity goes off, prosperity gospel goes off the rails, is they point us to earthly things. They say, God wants you to be happy, so he will give you cars and homes and health. What I am saying and what the Bible says is God wants you happy, so he gives you himself. He gives you himself. And you can be sick or poor or in prison, or persecuted, and still be happy. Don't look to joy in the earthly. Yes, enjoy the food, the car that doesn't break down, the home that keeps you warm. Follow those joys back to the joy giver and make sure you're celebrating God. Third, don't accept joylessness Don't accept joylessness any more than you would accept impatience, greed, or lust. Repent of it. Pray. Pray, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I know here this might sound really harsh, really judgmental. I'm not judging or condemning. I hope I'm inviting. I will be perfectly honest. I have walked through dark nights myself. Deep sadness, grief, joylessness, grumpiness, deeply. Ask those around me. What I'm saying is, don't just be content to stay there. Repent of that. Confess it and ask God. Say, God, Jesus, my cup is empty. Put a couple drops of joy in there, please. I'll come back tonight and ask for more. And I'll show up tomorrow morning and I'll ask again and again and again and again. I will be that persistent widow that keeps begging for your joy to fill my cup. Don't stop asking. Fourth, don't focus on what is being, or what is keeping you from being happy. 
Focus on Jesus. Focus on the treasure that you found in the field. If you were going to go around door-to-door first-century Israel and do some polling and ask, what is the biggest problem? The answer would certainly be Rome. If you were to ask, what is keeping you from being happy in life? The answer most certainly would be Rome. The Roman armies that occupy and oppress. You know how much Jesus talked about Rome? Not at all. He, he mentioned Caesar once in all of his recorded teachings. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. By his silence, he's saying a lot. He's saying, Rome, it's looming large in your eyes, but don't focus on that. It isn't the hindrance to joy that you think it is. You can live under Rome's boot and still be happy because I am here. I'm giving you my happiness. Focus on what God is giving you. What is keeping you from joy? I am not saying it's not real. I'm not saying the pain isn't real, the suffering isn't real, the grief isn't real. I'm saying it can coexist with happiness and joy. I love the way Paul describes himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. The whole section is great. He says, I'm beaten, but yet not yet killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. Whatever is going on in your life that is causing your joy to leak, your happiness to diminish, is real. And what you have in Christ outweighs it a hundredfold. Focus on that. Lean into that. Fifth and lastly, I promise, Don't neglect the Spirit's role. Embrace joy as the work of the Spirit. This is a weird tension that we live in. We can't do it, and yet we're called to. So often in Scripture, be perfect because your Heavenly Father is perfect. I can't. Be holy as I am holy. I can't. Be happy. Be joyful. Spirit, I need you. This is the fruit of the Spirit. I actively ask you to do what you do. I actively yield myself to do what you do. Produce that fruit in me. Choose joy. About 100 years ago, E. Stanley Jones, missionary to India, observed The early Christians did not say in dismay, look at what the world has come to. But in delight they said, look what has come into the world. They didn't look around. Under the shadow of the Colosseums, in poverty, and say, look at what the world has come to. They said instead, 
Look at who has come into the world, the author, originator, fountain, and prime purveyor of joy has come to share his joy with us. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we are often a glum people, gloomy. We allow the world and its decay to detract from our joy. But Father, all these things are in your, are in your hands. We pray that you would help us to rest in that and to celebrate the good things that you have given us, especially the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who shares his joy with us so that our cup can overflow. We ask that you would make us a joyful people and that that joy would become a billboard for you and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.